Talo for Lover, you're listening to Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific, or Lo'i Mo or Susana Suiswiki. Coming up. The General Fono agreed to revive the conversation on self-determination. Non-self-governing territories tell the UN that they want to break free. Also, it can potentially lead to mortality. Efforts to remove coral eating starfish from the cooks are ongoing. And later on, the US and China flexing their muscles. Why the Pacific needs to remain nuclear-free. Delegates from non-self-governing territories and dependencies around the world are in New York to address the United Nations Special Committee on Decolonization. Among them are delegates from the Pacific, where movements for independence is gaining traction. Finau Funua has more. It was apparent during talks at the UN Special Committee on Decolonization that the consensus of nations is to support the push of independence movements in far-flung colonies and overseas territories. One of the most passionate speeches came from Kanak National Liberation Movement delegate Magali Tingoleme. A 2021 referendum had rejected separation from France, but it's been disputed by pro-independence groups who boycotted the vote due to COVID concerns. Tingo Lema told the committee that the indigenous Canucks of New Caledonia were unhappy with the status quo of their native lands being a part of France. She accused the European superpower of going against the UN's principles of freedom and equality. Every time we speak before your institution, we carry the voice of the colonized people. When we speak of colonization, we are necessarily speaking of the people who have suffered the damage, the stigma and the consequences. We believe that through this illegitimate referendum, the French state has robbed us of our independence. We will never accept this outcome. And so, unable to contest the results under French internal law, we are turning to the international community for an impartial institution to indicate how to resume a process that complies with international rules on decolonization. Pro-independence Tahitian politician Vanina Krola also advocated for the independence of a collective of islands in eastern Polynesia known as French Polynesia. Like New Caledonia, the island group has been a part of France since the 18th century. But opinions of independence are more divided among native French Polynesians who've experienced a more positive historical relationship with Paris than the Canucks of New Caledonia. Earlier this year, pro-independence leader Moitai Brotherson won the territory's presidential elections by 38 votes to 19 over his anti-independence rival. Brotherson's party delegate, Vanina Krola, told the committee at present the French government were not opposing the movement. France values democracy as much as our government does. And if I stand here in front of you today, it's because of democracy. I am here to represent the government that our people has chosen democratically. Our president met with the French president of France, His Excellency Emmanuel Macron, the day after on June 7th. Madam Chair, I'm here to confirm to your honorable special committee and the world that the government of French Polynesia fully supports the proper decolonization process and self-determination process under the scrutiny 
of the United Nations. Tokelau's head of government, Karisiano Kalolo, told the Special Committee on Decolonization that he was committed to self-determination. A referendum held in Tokelau in 2007 showed that over 64% of Tokelauans supported changing the current political status of the islands. However, the results weren't enough to bring about change. Kalolo says there's renewed interest and that he's pushing for independence. He stressed he would maintain strong economic ties with New Zealand. The General Fono agreed to revive the conversation on self-determination and the future political status for Tokelau in the three Inuku. And we plan to initiate that in the second half of this year. Madam Chair, the relationship between Tokelau and government of New Zealand is significant and we will continue to look towards New Zealand and development partners for support. The Special Committee on Decolonization meeting concludes this week. More than 6,500 coral-eating crown thorn starfish have been removed from Cook Islands reefs since 2020 when the outbreak occurred. The starfish, called taramea in Cook Islands Māori, have decimated the country's reefs in the past. Divers, mainly in Rarotonga, have been controlling the numbers for the last three years as part of Operation Taramea. Marine biologist Dr Tena Rongo, who's leading the removal of the starfish, speaks with Caleb Fotheringham. What's the problem with taramea? So we've, we've had two outbreaks of taramea. The first was in the 1970s. That's the, the first time ever recorded, as we know, here in the Cook Island. And that was during a Pacific-wide outbreak as well. So Australia was having an outbreak, uh, French Polynesia. Um, that was the first outbreak. And then we had another outbreak. In 1990s, from mid 1990s up onto uh, until the 2000s,、uh, both outbreaks took around seven years to completely decimate the the corals on the reefs on Rarotonga. Wow! And when the reefs were decimated, what did that mean for the local community? Yeah,、um, you know,、uh, as we know, corals are very important in terms of providing shelter for the fish. But it also keeps problems away, like fish poisoning, which is a huge problem here、uh, in the Cook Islands and other Pacific Island countries, because it's a it's a neurotoxin that affects people from eating reef fish, and it can potentially lead to、uh, mortality. So the, the consequences of the Taramea outbreak. Yeah, not only、uh, in terms of killing the reefs, but then it leads to the loss of resources, the loss of revenue that people could make from, you know, selling fish and and what have you. It extends beyond just the reef dying. So, how do tadamia result in fish poisoning? So, when the reef is degraded or when the is killed, it provides a place for seaweed,、uh, your your algae to to grow. And the microscopic organisms that produce the toxins lives on these seaweeds, so it just provides more、uh, place for these microscopic seaweeds that produce the toxins to live. And so, you know, having a dead reef increases the probability of poisoning happening. Right, that makes sense. And are the crown of thorns starfish are they native to Rarotonga? Yeah, they natural. They occur naturally in waters. Uh, but in very low numbers,、uh, there's 
suggestion that these outbreak numbers are a result of land-based development, particularly around nutrients entering the marine from land. And this is leading to, to outbreaks. But before that, uh, when development wasn't a problem and nutrient wasn't much a problem, the crown numbers are in low numbers. And they play a role in that environment. Uh, they maintain biodiversity by keeping the numbers of the, of the population of the more dominant corals down to allow others to come through. So maintaining biodiversity. Right. So does that mean at the moment in Rarotonga there's a problem with too much sediment getting into the ocean? Um, yeah. I mean, as we know that you know there's a lot more tourists here. There's more development to cater for the tourists. So a lot of hotels being built. And so a lot of the nutrients from leaky uh, sewage, uh, septic tanks, and things like that, agriculture development and what have you, loading nutrients into the marine environment. Crownotones, at an early stage of their life cycle, they feed on plants. And these plants are fed by the nutrients that come off the land. If you have a lot of nutrients, you increase the chance of the baby tarumia surviving. And then when they're in outbreak situation, they just come in numbers. They start in the deep and they move up into the shallower parts of, of the reef that they pretty much kill from the deep to the shallow. So what we've been doing is we've been able to control the tarumia and keeping them deep. So people are not aware that this problem is occurring because they're not seeing it because we, we dive at depths from 15 meters and deeper. Um, so most people on the island um, have not seen a taramir before. Um, yeah, so because they're not coming into the lagoon, so it's not a problem to them. So, you know, we're doing our best to keep it out into the deeper waters and grow their numbers. So how are you doing that? Are you diving with tanks on? Yeah, so uh, when we began the operation, we were doing it free diving, and later on we started using scuba diving when numbers started coming down. Free diving because you, you can cover a much larger area um, and switch to using scuba tanks because, you know, they're hiding. Uh, so, you know, we need to spend a lot more time looking for them and it's hard to do that with free diving. Securing a nuclear-free region's been a long battle for the Pacific. After the Second World War, the United States, along with its French and British allies, frequently tested nuclear weapons in the region. In 1963, the British, American and Soviet governments agreed to ban atmospheric tests, but India, China and France were among those countries that did not. Nuclear testing in French Polynesia Mururoa Atoll became the focal point for both test and resistance towards this activity. It was also during this time that the Nuclear-Free Independent Pacific Movement and the Fiji Anti-Nuclear Group, or FANG, came about. Both groups played a significant role in influencing regional politics. Rachel Nath spoke with FANG's advocate and then-treasurer, Nick Naidu, and began by looking back to the 1970s. Yeah, so FANG was formed in Fiji in the 1970s following a... Uh, a international conference that was held there and and sort of got formalized in the 19 sort of mid 1980s and uh, it was basically the Fiji anti-nuclear group it was a mixture of the student movement mainly from the University of the South Pacific and also 
the trade union movement and the and 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 the NGO, including the Young Women's Christian Association. And could you tell us what gave rise to this movement? You know, as as the international um, movement for you know um, demilitarization and uh, disarmament grew, especially in the in the 80s, uh, and was very strong globally, but also uh, very much in in the neighbourhoods of Fiji, which was um, New Zealand and Australia. Um, there was a you know there was a call for a conference in the Pacific and. Also, the independence movements in the countries were were quite strong in the 70s and 80s as well. So there was so the nuclear free movement, uh, and and especially in the Pacific, combined with the uh, independence movements. So we we ended up calling it the NFIP movement, nuclear free independent Pacific movement, and and it was a unified movement to stop nuclear testing, which was going on um, at Mururoa Atoll in Tahiti and also uh, in the Marshall Islands in Bikini Atoll. So those were the two places that the testing continued in the 70s and 80s. And as a result, um, the groups were formed, and especially FANG, to counter that and try and stop that, and also to make Fiji nuclear-free as well. Nick, talk to us about what the atmosphere was like back in the 70s. Yeah, so one of the interesting things was uh, Fiji had just come out of independence in 1970, the politics was still quite new and quite raw, but and the backdrop to that was that the the regional institution for education was formed, the University of the South Pacific, and you had students from all the countries, including um, countries that the testing was going on or associated countries that there was testing going on. And there was also an anti-war movement because of Vietnam globally as well. And so all these things were going on, and that was the environment of activism in those days. Mm. And what would you say were some of the milestones for FANG? Well, we, you know, FANG hosted a number of international conferences and, uh, and, and also, I think, cemented a lot of the smaller nation uh, movements or started or helped start some of the smaller movements in, in some of the smaller countries. And, and and created a more you know wider Pacific movement, a united Pacific Front, and that also helped I think Aotearoa New Zealand, um, you know, get traction on the international scene against nuclearization. And I think in 1987, the the Labour government of David Longy um, actually passed legislation to make New Zealand nuclear free. And shortly afterwards, the newly elected Fijian government of Dr. Bavandra also uh, followed likewise. And, and, and I think prior to that and, and after that, many other nations in the Pacific declared themselves nuclear free. And it's quite interesting when you sit back now and you look at today's geopolitical challenges in the Pacific and with the US and China, mm. both nuclear powers flexing their muscles and how they can't you know, have their... Um, ships and planes, especially the submarines and 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 warships that are nuclear powered, um, enter most of the ports in the Pacific, except their own colonized ports. So you know, so that's the legacy of, you know, that that fight that we had mm. to make the to make our countries nuclear free. I'm not sure if we'd be able to have that change happen today, because of the power and influence of those big, you know, superpowers. Mm. But we managed to do it in those days. And they still continue till today. 
no doubt a massive contribution to today's outcomes. Now, a lot has happened since then, Nick. The Pacific has seen, you know, the assistance of from the West as well. A hand of friendship to right the wrongs, if you may, has been extended, or even to forge new friendships with players like Go Forward by safeguarding itself while also maintaining diplomatic ties. Yeah, and I think, you know, we always have to look at the positive side of, you know, investment and friendships with other countries. So, mm. you know, small countries, I mean, small countries like Fiji, uh, who are geopolitically very uh, centrally located and very important for strategic purposes, um, mm. they have to be really careful um, not to, well, they have to be careful not to sign away their their rights based on the need for money. So Fiji right now is desperately in need of money um, mm. because they've got a huge deficit in their budget. The budget's going to be released, I think, next month. End of the month. Yeah, uh, end, of, end of the month, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so that's, you know, you, that budget will show most probably there's a desperate need for some mm. drastic action. And the easiest solution, apart from making life difficult for the average citizen, is to find don- donors mm. um, and international funding from, well, the obvious, the four or five big countries, which are Russia, China, France, USA, and India. And yeah. so the problem will be, how do they take the money and still try their best not to be influenced? And uh, Fiji has been very good at that for, in the past with playing China and the US and the UK and Australia and New Zealand against each other. But I think it's a dangerous game that, uh, that, that uh, I think shouldn't be repeated with, yeah. uh, in this current environment. That's specific ways for today. To listen back, head over to rnzi.com slash programs. You can also download us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcasts from. So from myself and the team here at RNZ Pacific, so far so far.